So um, <clears throat> just, about, just about every morning, uh, Laura and I work out, and then uh, just about every morning we meet quickly for uh, breakfast together, quick breakfast, and we always have, almost always have yogurt. Any of you like yogurt? Some, some of you like that. Lori likes it straight. I can't handle it straight. Uh, I got to have a little um, honey or, or, or flavoring uh, in mine. And then, so we put it in a bowl, and then uh, uh, Lori thinks that flax seed is good for you. So we got to, I'm not convinced, but we, I go along with it. We sprinkle that in there and stir it all up. And then blueberries, and then sometimes peaches, that's great in the summer. And then, and then strawberries, and I always have some granola in there. And I always like to put in, in mine, um, banana, right? Now, bananas are tricky, aren't they? They're a tricky fruit. They are like great one day, and then the next day they get these brown age spot things all over them. And then you, you go in, and, and they're like kind of rotten inside. You got to work on these bananas. Bananas, tricky fruit. Bananas have a short shelf life. And our faith, our daily faith, has a short shelf life as well, doesn't it? We can't live today on the faith of yesterday. Every day, God's mercies to us are new. His faithfulness to us is great. And we have to respond with this fresh faith. Let me explain it this way. When we come to Christ here at the cross, we call this saving faith. Now, Understand that saving faith is one time for all time. That you come to that point in your life when you trust in Christ as the only way you can have a relationship with the living God. You come to that point where you realize you can't save yourself. You come to that point and realize there's this great gap between you and God. And you trust in Jesus as the one who paid the penalty for your sin, who bridges the gap, who allows you a relationship with the living God by his work on the cross, right? That's saving faith. That is one time for all time. That is a done deal when you're a Christian. You don't have to go back to that. You don't have to do that again. A Christian never has to be re-saved. But another part of that is this life we live, right? After we become a Christian, then we live this life. And there are ups and downs. And finally, we go and die and go to heaven. But during this life, there are these challenges. And we would call this sanctification, or we would call it the outworking of the saving faith, so we could call it practical or daily faith. And daily faith or practical faith is the product of saving faith. That makes sense? So saving faith is one time for all time. You can't do anything more there. But daily faith is something we got to keep fresh. We've got to make sure we are in communion w- with the Lord. We've got to be in his word. There are all kinds of things we can do to keep fresh in our faith, and we're going to talk about that as we go through Hebrews. But one thing we can do to keep fresh in our faith today as a body is to take communion. That's why Jesus left this for us. So as we prepare for that, we want to think about what Jesus has done. We want to think about what he's given us. We want to think about how we can keep our f- faith fresh 
as we follow hard after him. So take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to, today we're going to look at verses 15 through 28. We're going to keep our focus on the hinge verse of this section, which is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Now, if you see on the front of your bulletins, we have three quotes. The first quote every week will be uh, a quote about faith from an agnostic or an atheist, uh, what the world thinks about faith. The second quote is going to be a quote from a, living, a Christian living or dead. And then the third quote is going to be from Scripture. And today, and you can read those later, don't read them now, but focus on the last one, the Scripture, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. I'm going to read this verse, then we're going to work our way through it. Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Man, there's a lot in this verse, so let's work our way through it. First of all, we see that the verse starts with therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore, you know that what's going to be said is based on what's already been said. So you got to go back and see what's been said. The therefore in verse 15 connects with what's been said in verses 11 through 14. I won't read it all, but verse 11 starts, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calf, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal salvation. That is what Jesus has done for us. And we keep our, fresh, our, our faith fresh by going back and reviewing that and thinking about that. Look at the last verse. For, or how much more then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus has done all the work for us. We have this free gift of his grace. Therefore... He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, the writer in Hebrews has been telling us over and over again about this new covenant. The old covenant, it was good in and of itself. It was good for a time, but it, wasn't, it was never intended to last. The, the, the writer uses words like earthly. Uh, he uses words like man-made. Uh, he uses the word weak, obsolete. It was good for a time. It was a copy. It was a shadow of the real thing to come. And now the new covenant is here, and Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Let's think about that word mediator. A lot of times when we think about the word mediator or arbitrator today, uh, we think of one who, you know, stand, kind of stands between two parties, right? And so he goes to this party, and this party, and they're opposing each other. They're at odds with each other. So he goes here, or she goes here, and works with this party and says, you know what, you need to compromise here, you need to let this down, you, you need to change, your, you know, your expectation here. Goes to this party, does the same thing, and he, and he kind of compromises and, and brings them together, right? So I got called for jury duty, and I had a report on Monday, and uh, another person at the Bible chapel was there. And so, and so uh, we, got, we got chosen at the end of the day. Man, last, ugh, it was close. We were almost out there. But the last pick to go into this other uh, trial, the, the civil case that's going to be heard in, in, later in uh, September. And we're, we're just, we're in the pool, so we not, may not get picked. But. So we go in there and the person says, um, uh, 
The good news is, you need to call on Friday before this, before this case, because the good news is the, the judge normally, normally settles all the civil cases out of court, right? So that's what we're praying. He does his job and settles this thing out of court. So he's a what? He's a mediator. He's an arbitrator. He's going to just get with these two parties and work it out. Now, here's the difference when we look at this word in a biblical sense. With God, there was no compromise. Jesus didn't, you know, go to man and, and say, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, and God, you got to do this and do this. No compromise. The Heavenly Father said, the wages of sin is what? Death. There's no arbitration there. And so God used his son as the one who met the terms that God had put forward. No compromise. Now, many in our world today would say, oh, we don't even need an ar- a mediator anyway. I mean, we're all inherently good, right? I mean, we're, you know, just work it out. We all have this in- inherent goodness within us. Of course, that philosophy is it conflicts and is contrary to Scripture because there's this thing in Scripture that is termed with the theological description what? Total depravity. The seed of every sin is planted in our heart. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about people who have given themselves over to their evil, given themselves over to the seeds, allowed those seeds to grow, And he tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, just think about this list, man, it is a long list. uh, He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, um, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, long list, isn't it? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who participate in such things die, this last word describes our culture, doesn't it? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's what we see when we look in the mirror, right? The seed of every sin is in our heart. We know that. Are we as bad as we could possibly possibly be? No. Is anyone as bad as he could possibly be? No. But that sin is there. That's what we see in the mirror until what? Until we meet Jesus. He is the one who came, and he is the one who paid the penalty for every sin that I have, that I have committed or that I will commit. He is the one who died on the cross for my sin. That allows him to be my mediator and stand before God as the one who paid who paid the debt I couldn't pay. Now that truth is also demonstrated in another word. Therefore, he's a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, a death has occurred, Jesus' death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the law. Let's think of the word redeem. We, we talk about it a lot in church, right? If you've been around church, you've heard the word redeemed. You've sung it. Or the word redeemed, redeemer, redemption. What does it mean? Well, let me give you a definition. The word redeemed in its basic definition means to be freed 
by means of a price paid. To free by means of a price paid. It's a word rich in Old Testament theology. So what would happen in the Old Testament? Uh, I made a bad business deal. Uh, I took a risk that didn't work out. And I am indebted to a person. I owe that person money, but I can't pay it. I have no money to pay my debt. I am now that person's slave. He's my master. I'm the slave. I got to work for him. I can't work to put food on my table. I got to work to pay back my debt. Bad situation, right? So what I would do is I would go to those in my family, first in my family, and say, I'm, I'm desperate. I need your help. I am slave to this man. My life's falling apart. And I need you to pay the debt. If, if no one in my family could do it, I'd go to my closest friends and say, I got to have your help. And when the person would come and say, okay, I can help you, if they were my family, they were called a kinsman redeemer. If they weren't in my family, they're just my redeemer. But they would come and they would write the check or give the money. And that that debt paid would allow me to go free. So I was redeemed. That person was my redeemer. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us, right? We were enslaved to sin. We couldn't pay the debt on our own. No way, no how. We were desperate. And so we call on Jesus to pay the debt for us, to pay the debt we couldn't pay. And he did that by his death on the cross. He became our, our redeemer. Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our freedom. First Timothy, Paul in First Timothy puts the mediator and the redeemer together in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, when he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man... Christ Jesus, that's the mediator part, right? And then he talks about redemption, who gave himself as a what? A ransom or a payment for us. There's the redeemer. He is our mediator. He is our redeemer. Let's think about this for a second. What about people in the Old Testament? Jesus paid our debt on the cross right? He's our redeemer. What about people in the Old Testament before Jesus? How was, how was their debt paid? How did the person, how, can a person in the Old Testament be saved? If so, how were they saved? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's right here in this verse at the end. Let's talk about it. Therefore, he's a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them, redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's interesting, isn't it? Let's think about that. We know this, that under the old covenant, you were not saved by keeping the law. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, very clearly, and other verses. In Galatians chapter 11, and other verses, very clearly, you can't be justified by keeping the law. Think about it. If in the Old Testament you were justified because you kept the law, and in the New Testament you were justified because you, uh, by grace, what would you have? You have two ways of salvation presented in Scripture. Scripture would not be 
the Old Testament, and then flowing into the New, you, you have an old book and a new book, two different ways of salvation. We know that salvation is not by works. Paul tells us from the beginning, even the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. It's not about keeping the law. In fact, Paul tells us the law is just a tutor. It just tells us that we're off base. If I'm going down the road going 50 miles an hour and and I'm just cranking along, if I see a sign that says speed limit 35, that sign, that law is the tutor. It tells me I'm going too fast and I've got to slow down. It's the law that makes us conscious of our sin. So... How about those in the Old Testament? How were they saved? People in the Old Testament before Jesus, people before Jesus were saved the same way as people after Jesus. Salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul makes this argument with Abraham when he talks about Abraham being saved by faith. In the Old Testament, my faith is in the promise Messiah, the one who's coming. People yearned for the new Messiah. The prophets wrote of the Messiah. And so people put their faith in this one who was going to come to save them. In the, Old, in the New Testament, we're looking back. We can look at it this way. Wherever you are in Scripture, in the Old Testament or New Testament, Jesus is the central point. You go back to Genesis 3, and you're talking about this one who's going to come that's going to defeat Satan. Back in Genesis 3, right after the fall, Jesus is always the central point. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saint is looking forward to the coming Messiah. The New Testament saint, that's us, we're looking back, right, at what Jesus has done for us. Think of, it, think of it this way. The death of Jesus, if we could just put it in these terms, the death of Jesus for the Old Testament saint is in a sense retroactive. In a sense, their salvation was on credit. They were saved, but it was on credit. And then at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty in full. They were still saved. They still went to heaven. There was no waiting period for them. But Jesus save them fully at the cross as he saves us fully. You can think of it at a little deeper level. You know, we, we're on a timeline, right? We're on a timetable. We got days and, and hours, we got hours and minutes and days and weeks and months. God doesn't think like that. He, 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 he comes into time because that's, we know it. But, but he doesn't think like that. God has like one eternal, we can't even imagine this, but one eternal thought. And so in his one eternal thought, it's all done, right? The Old Testament saint, the New Testament saint, the death of Christ, it's all there. The Old Testament saint, the New Testament saint, saved the same way. So just jot this down. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the basis for faith, for saving faith, the basis for saving faith is always grace. It's a free gift. Can't earn it. The means of salvation is always faith. Trust in what God's going to do or what he's done. The object of salvation is always who? Jesus. Old Testament or new. Looking forward to this coming Messiah, looking back on the one that has come.
So that's what the writer tells us here, right? He redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He covers it all from the beginning to the end. Now, one more thing here. Not only is Jesus our mediator, like past tense, it's present tense. He is our mediator. Right now, he is standing. You want to think about fresh faith. You want to think about going back and thanking Jesus for what he's doing. Right now, he is standing at the right hand of God, interceding for us. A couple verses to jot down. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Who then is the one who condemns? The writer says, no one, because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also what? Interceding for us right now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to what? He lives to mediate for them. He lives to intercede for them. So we have this beautiful verse, chapter 9, verse 15, that tells us that Jesus is our mediator, that Jesus is our redeemer, that Jesus is the one who died for our sins, that he is our only way to have a relationship with the living God. And the writer says, I want you to keep that fresh. I want you to keep that in your mind. Never go too far from who Jesus is. Visit it often. And in the rest of the chapter, he gives us three reasons why his death is so important as he unpacks chapter 9, verse 15. Here's the first one. By his death, Jesus established a new covenant. The first thing the writer does, he's already told us that, but he says, I just want to drill this home, and I want to to emphasize that in order to have a new covenant, you have to have a death. That's what he says, verse 16. For where there is... For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. What's he saying? He's just saying when Jesus died, the new covenant became effective. If you have a will, if you make a will, it's not effective if you're alive. When you die, as Jesus did, now it's effective. And he says in verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I want to stop there one second and say, when you read blood in the, uh, in the Bible, we're not, it's not talking about someone bleeding. I mean, it could be on the battlefield, but when you're reading it in light of salvation or in, in, in light of, of theology, it's not blood as in someone bleeding. It is always synonymous with death. And here's why. You could, you could interchange blood with death every time. Here's why, Leviticus 17, uh, 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one life. In the Old Testament, it was the blood that made atonement. So the rest of that chapter uh, through, or the rest of those verses down to uh, 22, the writer is talking about the fact that in the Old Testament, that the Old Covenant was initiated with blood as well. When the the Old Covenant was initiated, Moses, who, who brought it to be, took blood, sacrificed a bull, took some of the blood, sprinkled it on the law as a symbol that only through the death 
of that sacrifice could one know God. He sprinkled it on the tent. He sprinkled it on the things within the tent. It was through blood that issued in this old covenant, just like the death of Christ is issuing in the new covenant. And then he says, mark this in your Bible, uh, verse 22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified by blood without what? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Old Testament or new? The old animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, the one time for all time perfect sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The death of Christ established the new covenant. Here's the second thing. The death of Christ provided full and complete forgiveness from the penalty of sin. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. What's the writer saying? It, it was necessary to purify the old covenant stuff with the blood of bulls and goats, but now the better sacrifice, the one time for all time sacrifice. Jesus is here. Look at verse 24. Jesus has entered into the holy place made in holy places, made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. He didn't enter those things, but he entered into heaven itself now to prepare to appear in the presence of God on our behalf as our mediator. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. Here's what the writer's saying. Jesus sacrificed himself one time for all time to put away sin. I love that word, put away. It means annulment. He annulled sin. He put it away. It has no effect anymore on us. He did that by the sacrifice of himself, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but he did it One time for all time, the perfect sacrifice. And then the writer says, he didn't have to do it again. Now remember, the readers here, it's about 65 AD when they're reading this, the temple's still standing. And they're Christians, but they're tempted to go back to the temple and do all those sacrifices again. And the writer's saying, you don't have to do that anymore. Jesus has cleansed you one time for all time. And he says, he puts forth this absurdity. How absurd would it be? If Jesus had to come back and suffer again, repeatedly, he died on the cross, buried, rose from the dead, goes to heaven, comes, has to come back, dies again, resurrects, goes back to heaven, he has to come back. How absurd would that be? And by the way, I don't know some of your backgrounds, but think about them. If there is anything in your background, in your traditions, in your rituals, that's, that re-sacrifices Christ. That's a problem. That's not what it's saying right here in Hebrews. Jesus died once for all. He died and he rose from the dead. He's not on the cross anymore. He doesn't have to re-sacrifice himself. Nor is there any ritual we go through that re-sacrifices Christ. One time for all time. That's it for the forgiveness of sins. One more thing. By his death. Jesus provides full and complete salvation by his death. We're going to celebrate that in a second in communion. By his death and resurrection, Jesus provides full and complete salvation. Look at verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man once to die, 
And after that comes the judgment. Let's stop right there. This verse actually is the beginning of another thought, but a lot of times we stay right there, and let's do that now. It's appointed for every person to die, and after that, the judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. There's no, uh, this old heresy that's being uh, brought back today, of what's called annihilation. If you're not a believer and you die, you're just dead. You just lose consciousness. That's not what that verse says, is it? It's appointed unto man once to die, and then what? After that, the judgment. First, every one of us is going to die. Whether we eat flaxseed or not, we are going to die. And God has that day appointed. And I'm going to change it. The day you die is the day God appointed you to die. And then after that, the judgment. Now, it doesn't mean immediately after that. Immediately we go to heaven if we're a believer, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Old Testament saint, New Testament saint. Because the Old Testament saint is saved just, just like the New Testament saint. But there will come a day when there's a judgment. The believers, it's the judgment seat of Christ. And there, Jesus says, welcome home. Here are your rewards. For the unbeliever, it's what? It's called the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. That is the judgment for eternal punishment, hell. It's appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Are you ready for that? So I've got to tell you, you don't know when you're going to die, young or old. Age, age is not a factor here. can be, but it's not. This summer we buried a 21-year-old. Not old. You're going to die. And what's going to happen after that? Man, that is a question every man, woman, boy, and girl has to answer. So, the writer says, just as it is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin this time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting his return. The next time he comes, Jesus is not going to come to walk on earth and die on a cross. He's already done that one time for all time. He will never have to do that again. The next time he comes, what's he going to do? He is going to become as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords. He came the first time, walked on earth as the prophet. Here's what's going to happen. And then he went to the cross, became our high priest. The next time he comes, he will be king of kings for those who eagerly await him. And he'll completely save us. We're saved now. We're saved now, but then we'll be completely saved. We're saved now. It's as good as done, but we still are living. We still got a life to live. We're still struggling sometimes in, in, in the journey we have. We still need to, to refresh our faith. We're saved now, but then we'll be, we'll be completely saved. We, we use this word sometimes in theology uh, for this already. Not yet. Already, it's happened, but not yet. So yesterday, uh, Lauren and I had some friends take us to the uh, Oklahoma State pit game. 
Lori is an alumni of Oklahoma State. It's a great game. Great game. It was, it was, uh, it was 49 uh, to 14 at halftime. Oklahoma State was ahead. 49 to 14. So, uh, it was a great, did I say it was a great game? <laughs> so the game was virtually over at halftime, right? I mean, it was done. 49-14. It was over. But not yet. They still had the second half to play. They still had to get on the field. They still had to exert a lot of energy. Some guys got hurt second half. Pitt scored in the second half. The game was basically over. Now, I know that breaks down because they could have come back. They didn't, but they could have. I get that breaks down, but that's the deal, right? That's what we're living. The game's over. We win. Satan can't come back. We still got to go through. We still got to play the second half. We still got to exert ourselves. We still have to read God's word. We still have to be, keep our faith fresh. But the game's over. And when he comes back, we will see that full We're already saved, but then we'll see that full salvation. We get to celebrate the final victory when the final gun goes off. By the way, that's why we take communion. To keep our faith fresh. Not as a ritual, not as some liturgical thing we do, not because we've always done it here once a month. But Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He says, when you do this, you're doing two things. You're remembering that by my blood, I issued in the new covenant. And you're proclaiming my death until what? I come again. You're remembering that I'm going to come again as King of kings and Lord of lords.